This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Monday. Daphna, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm glad uh, that we are going to be doing ophthalmology and um, otolaryngology because I don't feel like I got a great, I did a great job studying it the first time. <laughs> you were saying off air. I don't remember That's saying right. that part. That's right. <laughs> did I ever get to it? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I did I the think, questions. I think I remember having like a one pager for the board where I basically like a week before I went through the section. I was like, sure, fine, fine. I, I wrote down like five facts. I was like, all right, these are the testable facts that if I were asked today, I would probably don't know. And I'm like, I'll figure out the rest. I mean, I reviewed ROP, I think. <laughs> yeah, ROP, yeah, of course, of course. We'll get to that, I guess, today. Uh, I think so. All right. Um, <clears throat> all right, so I guess I'll, I'll, you want me to get started on the embryology mm-hmm. stuff? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, it's funny, the embryology stuff. I mean, you know that embryology was my worst subject in med school. Like, I mm-hmm. hated it. Mm-hmm. And then I became a neonatologist, which obviously meant I had to sort of undo the divorce that uh, between mm-hmm. me and And now I still hate it, but it's, I'm forcing myself to just appreciate it. So now, anyway. It's funny because I actually think it's one of your skill sets. Yeah. I just, just, just vehemently repulsed by explaining <laughs> embryology. Anyway. <clears throat> so the embryology of the eye is actually not that bad. And... Um, we're going to talk about a few facts. Obviously, this is a board review, and so there's probably um, there's like chapters and chapters about the the neurological development, the development of the neurological system that includes uh, the development of the eye. But for the boards, it's mostly about like, do you know where things are coming from? Do you know when things are developing? So, the eye begins developing during the fifth week of gestation. Um, and it's interesting to see how the different structures are coming from different germ layers. So the retina is a derivative of the neuroectoderm of the forebrain. Now, the lens, which is in front of the eye, is surface ectoderm, which all that so far makes sense. And then in between, you have mesoderm, um, which is uh, responsible for vascular and, sub- and sclerocorneal layers. So there's a, a following section in the in the book about the anatomy of the eye, which I'm going to skip because obviously if you're not looking right now at um, a, a diagram, it's going to be it's going to be a bit it's a bit difficult. But remember, you have your um, cornea at the most um, anterior aspect, then you have your iris, you have your pupil, then um, you have your lens. And in the back, you find your retina, your optic nerve, your macula, your retinal blood vessels. And in the middle, you have your large vitreous body. So what about functional development of the eye? And I feel like this is actually quite useful because parents so, so many times are like, when are you going to test my baby's vision? And it's like, first of all, we don't. And why <laughs> don't we? So 30 weeks- And sorry, this is high yield for the boards. This yeah. is, I mean, these... Milestone motor mm-hmm. development stuff is super high yield. Right. So from a preterm infant, you cannot expect too much, but you can expect at about 30 weeks of gestation and onward 
to, to see closure of the eyelid in response to light, you can see uh, a pupil reactive to light, and it may not really respond until even 32 weeks. And the, the light reflex actually um, becomes well-developed at age one month. And that's really it. So eyelid closure in response to light and uh, pupil reflex. Now, what about a full-term infant? So a full-term infant is able to, have con to conjugate horizontal gaze, which means that um, having an ability to move both eyes um, while looking from right to left um, they're able to perform visual fixation, which means that they're able to stop on an object and sort of stare. Uh, and that really becomes much more well-developed at two months. So we talked about being a full-term being able to do this horizontally from right to left. What about up and down? Well, that's two months of age. So conjugate vertical gaze happens at about two months. Um, in terms of following, so taking this, um, this conjugate gaze and actually putting it into practice, that's about three months. So the visual following is well developed at that time. Now, in terms of um, what happens after that, we have at six months of age, visual evoked potential reaches adult level. So meaning they're starting to get a response to what they see. Um, and then by age two years, is when the myelination of the optic nerve is finally complete. So it is quite staggering how slow of a process it is. I think many parents and many people in general think that a baby is so cognizant of their surrounding, that they see everything, they notice everything, but they're kind of clueless, it looks like, huh? Well, I don't know if I would say that. <laughs> I think there are two extremes especially in the NICU. Some people feel like, well, the babies don't see anything, which isn't true, right? They, right. they do see certain things, um, figures, faces, contrast, light. Um, but yeah, I mean, the eye is a complicated organ. Yeah. It also goes to show how the um, interaction between a newborn and their surrounding is actually a composite of multiple senses. So they, right. they hear, they smell, and they put all that information together into, into a stimuli. But it's not like... If you uh, like, if you put earmuffs on on, the, on their ears and and you block their nostrils for some reason, uh, their eyes are not the most reliable tool for them. In any case, yeah, and the reverse of that is that's why they are so sensitive to those other things, right? right. Because they can't rely on the visual stimuli. That is so, right. okay, let's talk about reflexes. Yeah, you know, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about reflexes of the eye in the preterm infant. Um, and there's a reason for that, because as you said, especially the pupillary um, re light reflex is not um, responsive until about 30 to 32 weeks. Um, but let's talk about more about the pupillary light reaction. It evaluates the pupillary response to light. Um, and a reminder is that you need to compare the response of each eye and assess the degree of pupillary constriction. And um, regarding the innervation, so the parasympathetic innervation leads to constriction and the sympathetic innervation leads to dilation. And this may be counterintuitive, but if you think about our evolution, <laughs> you know, if you had a real threat, a sympathetic um, innervation need, um, you'd want to be able to see more things. Um, and so dilation of um, the pupils. Yeah. So the, the way I think, I mean, I love photography. So if you, if right. you enjoy photography, then just try to think about it as trying to gather information. If you're trying to take a picture in dark uh, lighting, 
you're not going to get all the details. And so you would probably want to turn on the light. And one sure. of the ways that our body turns on the light is by opening um, the pupil so that you let more light in. And then, so that's why, yeah, that's why it's a, it's a sympathetic response. Um, the pupillary response to light tests for an intact afferent and efferent pathways of cranial nerve three. And just because we're neonatologists and pediatricians, the boards do test on the cranial nerves. So definitely something to go back on. Um, this suggests uh, also suggests visual function of the subcortex. But of note, this may be present despite cortical blindness because, like you said, it's really testing um, the cranial nerve three. So developmentally in preterm infants, the um, ability to of the pupil to respond to light increases with advancing gestational age. But we really don't have true reactivity of the pupil to light until about 30 weeks gestation. Um, and, you know, up until 32 weeks gestation, we may still not see a great pupillary response. And it's well developed by age one month. Non-reactive bilateral pupils with an increased size can be observed in infants with late signs of a hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. They may also, babies with HIE have the opposite. They may have decreased pupillary size and can sometimes uh, can be uh, reactive. So um, they have these constricted pupils with uh, mild reactivity. Um, you may also see abnormal pupillary response in babies with um, large intraventricular hemorrhage and an infantile botulism we'll talk about in the ID mm -hmm. section. A non-reactive unilateral pupil with increased size in infants um, can often represent a subdural hematoma or other unilateral mass, if you remember back to your <laughs> trauma days. Right? Um, let's talk about the choroidal light reflex, which is really our red reflex, um, which we are very frequently assessing. Um, and uh, physiologically, this detects the retinal blood vessels that appear as a red glow when viewed through an ophthalmoscope. It demonstrates a lack of obstruction between the external corneal surface and the retina. We also see some developmental changes here. So we um, would not really expect necessarily a choroidal reflex until about 28 weeks. So preterm infants less than 28 weeks may not have the reflex because of unclear corneas or cloudier corneas mm -hmm. and vitreous. And so why is this important? One, you may not see the red reflex and it's important and that's important to note. And two, um, it's harder to diagnose some of the other developmental abnormalities of the eye and the pre early preterm infant uh, because of the more kind of opaque nature of the, of the eye. So in babies where you anticipate a normal red reflex, but you see leukocoria or the white reflex, um, you really have to start thinking about what's going on here. It is most commonly caused by cataracts, but may also be attributed to retinoblastoma, coloboma, retinopathy of prematurity, persistent hyperplastic primary vitreous, a retinal detachment, vitreous hemorrhage, intraocular inflammation, um, or myelinated uh, nerve fibers. Um, but leukocoria requires uh, a workup. And the one thing I will say the, about the boards is they really like knowing uh, the differences and the different syndromes between the retinoblastomas, the colobomas, the cataracts. Um, that's, I think, really high yield. So we mm -hmm. will get into those mostly into the genetic syndromes. Okay.
Am I next already? Mm -hmm. mm. All right. So let's talk about some of the abnormalities of the eye and start with the abnormal positioning of the eye. So um, when we're talking about the positioning of the eye, we're talking about the distance between the we're talking about the distance between the pupils, right? I mean, and you could have the normal features, you could have hypertellerism, which means that your eyes are really wide and far apart, or you could have hypotellerism, which means that your eyes are close by. Um, so what are some of the, what are some of the, um, what are some of, of the features of, of, of each one? So let's talk about hypotellerism, which is a decreased intraorbital distance. It has a high association with hollow prosencephaly. That's super high yield. Um, and may also be associated with other syndrome, which include Meckel-Gruber, which include trisomy 13, which include William syndrome. Um, now, what about hypertellerism, which means your eyes are now widely spaced? Um, and so what you have to be careful, obviously, is that when you do this measurement, you're not being fooled by a low nasal bridge, which can give you the false impression of hypertellerism, but you do need to measure. So this is not something you want to just like eyeball. You want to actually measure it. Now, hypertellerism is associated with another set of syndrome, most notably Appert syndrome, Cat-Eye syndrome, charge association is a big one, Cri-Duchat syndrome, Cruzon syndrome, Deletion 13Q, the George Holtorum syndrome, Noonan syndrome, and trisomy 8. Now, what I think is extremely high yield is that this is uh, often seen as a teratogenic effect of uh, hydentoin and isoretinoin, which obviously is used for acne treatment. I feel like these are easy um, associations where they could present a baby with hypertellerism, tell you that the mother had a history of acne, that she was taking a medication. What is the likely medication? They could put that in the list. Boom, easy question to write. Um, and so that's, that's uh, the section on um, uh, uh, position of the eyes. Let's talk about the uh, eyelids. So let's talk about the, the the palpebral fissures. I think when you're in pediatric residence, you're like, what the heck? Like it took it takes some time to understand what is a palpebral fissure. But the easy way to think about it is that your lab, you have the, the eye has two quote unquote corners, right? You have the corner of the eye that's on the lateral aspect of your face, so closer to your ears. And then you have the corner of your eye that's closer to your nose. Now, if you were to draw a line between these two edges, that's your palpebral fissure. And that line could either be sort of straight, which is considered normal, or it could actually have an, an, uh, a positive slope, meaning it's pointing upwards toward the helix of your ear, and that's an upslanting or upward palpebral fissure. Or it could be pointing downwards toward maybe uh, your earlobe, and that's considered downward slanting of the, palp the palpebral fissure. So it's almost as if you were playing around on your computer and you were sort of rotating the image of the eye and you were just twisting the eye on, a, on, an, on an axis there. Now, upslanting of the palpebral fissure um, is considered abnormal if there's intersection of the two lines through the medial and lateral canthus of each eye. I call them corners. Obviously, I'm not a doctor. I don't know all these fancy terms. Uh, <laughs> But that's what it is. It's the corners of the eyes. It's the pointy parts of the eye. It's the pointy part of the eye. <laughs> of the eyelid. Um, so of each eye, and it's below. Uh, so it's if the intersection of the two lines 
um, through the medial lateral canthus of each eye is below the line connected to the medial canthus of both eyes. So, I mean, it's more, I think the way I explained it made more sense, but I'm, so I'm going to skip that. Now, what is it uh, due to? It's probably due to the smaller growth rate of the brain above the eye compared to the facial area below the eye, i.e. microcephaly. There's a high association with trisomy 21. That's obviously very, very high yield. It's also associated with some teratogenic effect of Hydantoin. It's also associated with Prader-Willi. It's also associated with trisomy 13. And it's also associated with trisomy 18. And these are great distractors because you may say, oh, is that associated with this? And it's like, yes, it is. Now, mild degree of upslanting has been observed in about 4% of non-syndromic children. And I think that this is something that we always uh, argue in the NICU because you see a baby, you're like, oh man, does that baby have sort of features consistent with Down syndrome? And then you sort of want to meet with the parents to see it, if, if this is sort of uh, familial, maybe, maybe it's just normal. And, and the 4% is not a negligible number by any means. Now, downslanting of the palpebral fissure is due to a greater growth rate of the brain above the eye compared to the facial area below the eye, i.e. maxillary hyperplasia. Now, that is associated with Appert syndrome, Noonan syndrome, Creedusha. I think Creedusha is a very high-yield one, by the way. Um, Rubenstein-Taibbi syndrome, Treacher-Collins syndrome. It may also um, be associated with uh, other syndromes, including Karai, DeGeorge sequence, and it is a it's often seen as a teratogenic effect of isoretinoin, again, for treatment of um, acne. So to summarize, with isoretinoin, you could have hypertellurism and you could have downslanting of your palpebral fissures. But with hydentoin, you can have hypertellurism as well, except that then your palpebral fissures will be upslanting. So interesting differential where they could have some some shared some shared features but others that are very different let's talk about ptosis um, and what we mean by that is that the upper eyelid cannot really rise to a normal level um, and it sort of is stuck halfway closing uh, leading to decreased vertical space between the upper and the lower eyelids it can be unilateral or bilateral now what is the pathogenesis? That is usually a dysfunction of the le le levator palpebral muscle cranial nerve number three. Um, it's usually isolated autosomal dominant disorder with variable penetrance. Um, you do have to consider also cranial nerve palsy. Uh, there's something called Homer's syndrome, which can be observed with Klumpke's palsy, which we see after um, traumatic deliveries. It is associated with specific syndrome, including deletion 13Q, Fanconi pancytopenia syndrome, fetal alcohol syndrome, Mobius sequence, Noonan syndrome, Smith Lemley Opitz syndrome, um, Wagger syndrome. I mean, W A G R, right? I mean, I say Wagger. I mean, fine, everybody says Wagger. Also observed with chronic eyelid inflammation, trauma, or myasthenia gravis. I think congenital myasthenia gravis is something we've covered on the podcast before. But that, to me, is the one that I've seen very commonly being tested on in, in practice runs. Uh, tosis of if, if the upper eyelid is at the level of the pupil. So the diagnosis is if the, the eyelid is at the level of the pupil when the eye is in the neutral position. I hope that makes sense. So how do you say, okay, that's actually not normal, is when the upper eyelid is at the level of the pupil. It's often difficult to diagnose in, in neonates especially if it's bilateral. Because if it's bilateral, you're like, is they're just closing their eyes or not? But if it's unilateral, it's usually um, easier to diagnose. The, the review book does not really go into um, 
the, the management because I'm pretty sure that this is not high yield at all. Um, okay, should I, um, what time is it? Let me see. I, I was going to, you want me to do associations and then we'll get into disorders tomorrow? No, I think we're good. Okay, you're right. Because it's, it's a big table. Okay, fine. Um, yes. And I don't want to just run through it because I think that is very high yield. High and we're going to end up spending some, mm -hmm. I don't know. This might be the entire episode tomorrow. So let's see. All right, Daphna. See you tomorrow, buddy. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.